I don't want anybody to get into this point where they're starting to go down the path of green hushing or green whispering saying, I don't even want to talk about what I'm doing around ESG because there's so much reporting or there's so much bureaucracy I need to do. It's not worth it. Yeah. Let's talk about the photos and the renderings that you use on your property website. Every prospective renter will tell you that your website's gallery is going to play a significant role in their decision to visit the property and inquire about leasing. If that's the case, those photos and video assets better be attractive. Did you know that 61% of students in southeastern states prefer a bedroom photo that has daylight coming from the window versus evening light? However, 69% of students in Midwestern states prefer evening light. Isn't that something you would like to know if you're building a website for a property in Tennessee versus Missouri? Here's another one. Were you aware that 78% of students that were recently surveyed prefer exterior building photos that are set in sunrise or sunset lighting versus midday lighting? I didn't realize that. But in a world where every property website is trying to attract as much interest as possible, don't you think that's some important data to consider? So how can you get your hands on this data? Well, those three data points I just mentioned are all from an annual report titled Designing for the Future. The report is spearheaded by Euphorus VR and supported by several student housing companies like Asset Living, Cardinal Group, and Landmark Properties. Why is there so much support for this? because these companies want to make sure they are keeping their hands on the pulse of what students are thinking. Specifically with Euphorus, they spearhead this report because their graphic designers want to understand our customer even better than we do. It's one of the things that makes Euphorus so great at what they do. We've talked about Euphorus VR on the podcast before because of just how impressed I've been with their photorealistic renderings and how their process saved one of my development clients a ton of money by exposing design issues that were not called in the review process with the architect. Their final product is so realistic that I've even had interior designers who looked at their rendering and could not distinguish the rendering apart from the post-construction photos. Also, when the pandemic broke out and we were trying to figure out how to offer VR tours. Euphoria stepped up and provided a very low cost option for existing properties who didn't have VR tours already to scan their properties and create them. They are a talented and a fantastic company, and I'm proud to call them a sponsor of this podcast. If you are needing photorealistic renderings of an upcoming development or rehab, go to euphorist.com. That's U-F-O-R-I-S.com. At their website, you can also download a free copy of their 2023 Designing for the Future report. There's so much valuable insight in this report, so go get it even if you don't have an immediate need for renderings. Again, that's euphorist.com. We'll also provide a link in the show notes. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and joining me today is a very special co-host from across the pond that we refer to as the Atlantic, is Dan Smith. Dan, how are you? Very good. Thanks for having me, Wes. Well, I'm excited to have you on here. You and I have, we've, uh, gosh, it's what, three, four, five years now that I think we've yeah. 
kind of been working together. And first time I met you was uh, you were with Nito at the time. And I was in London doing some interviews with some purpose-built student accommodation providers, not student housing providers, but accommodation providers. And you happen to be one of those folks. And we've continued to, to have a lot of conversations since then. So welcome to the podcast. I think this is the first time we've actually... No, we did have you on the podcast one other time when... That's right, at Interface. At Interface, yeah, when we were talking about international recruitment. So yeah, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago that we first met back in London and great to be here. So uh, for those that don't follow you on LinkedIn and may not have, have been in our direct you know, sphere over the past couple of years to know who you are and what you're doing, give us a little bit of the background on as far as your student housing background in Europe and then catch us up with what you're doing today. So I, I fell into student accommodation, to be completely honest. My background is very varied, sports travel, hospitality, gin, having worked for Bacardi. And then from there, sort of fell into student accommodation back in around sort of 2016. Originally went into sales and marketing director at Nido, but very quickly became managing director primarily through a power void rather than any spectacular performance on my part, to be completely honest. But I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. And it was my role as managing director of Nido, which is a pan-European operator, to really sort of grow and scale the business. So I managed to take it from four people to 116 and from sort of one property to 14 across sort of 18 months to two years. So Learned a hell of a lot there, made a lot of mistakes, but made sure they were quite small ones and have managed to then sort of build a bit of a reputation within the industry as someone that can ultimately help operators and investors to scale their portfolios in a reasonably quick time frame. And then from my time at Nido, where uh, Nido was owned by Roundhill Capital and I was working with the likes of you know, Starwood and KKR and a fair few other private equity firms. I then went over to an international marketplace based out of India and worked for them for a couple of years until COVID hit. And then obviously international students just stopped traveling to the UK. And so that was the perfect time for me to set up a student housing consultancy, which I actually named Student Housing Consultancy, and work with investors, operators, suppliers on a global level to really help them sort of navigate the student accommodation market and do a fair bit of strategic advisory and really make sure that I can leverage my contacts, my network, and do a bit of thought leadership as well. If I do say so myself, it's ultimately a, a real opportunity being an independent consultant for me to try to help the industry create a level of best practice. That's what I've been doing in student housing consultancy on an operational level and, and working very closely with key clients and investors globally. But also at the same time that I was leaving my role at Unilodgers, the international marketplace, I was setting up an ESG and sustainability consultancy as well. And that was born out of a trip to India originally. I absolutely love India. There are pockets of beauty there. But equally, there's a huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And I kind of wanted to do something that was commercial and would help me, help me realize some commercial aims but also then do a lot of good within the country and globally from an environmental and a social standpoint. So I originally set up CSR Management Group as a consultancy doing CSR policies. And then I merged that consultancy with actually a good friend of mine who had set up an environmental consultancy. 
specializing in real estate. Now we operate Good Management Group, which is really sort of overseeing strategic level ESG, CSR and sustainability for a lot of real estate operators and investors, but also other industries too. And so right now I'm sort of in the perfect intersection between PBSA and ESG and sustainability and able to talk with reasonable authority on both sides of the coin there. So it's been a real fascinating insight. Again, I've learned a lot through the industry about ESG and sustainability. And in particular, our clients within student housing and build to rent in the UK, BTR, or multifamily, as you'd call it in the US, and hotels and hospitality as well. So it's been a real learning curve, but we've got some great clients. We're really making waves in the UK and starting to kind of influence policies in, in various different areas of the industry. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on this episode, because back in June with Shop Talk, we had a panel interview with someone that's over sustainability with Harrison Street, and then also a couple of folks from from Graystar, who I'll introduce here when we play that interview. But I really wanted to get, I mean, obviously, ESG and Net Zero, it's a global strategy that everybody is you know, really focused on when it comes to picking out their investments. And it's not just in real estate, it's across just about every sector. But with real estate, it's it, it's really kind of different. And I wanted to bring somebody on that had a little bit of insight, not just from a, a US standpoint, because our other guests on here certainly have that down, but everything that's happening with ESG here in the States seems to be following maybe five to 10 years behind where things are at in Europe. And obviously that's where you're located. And I wanted to really kind of get some perspective from you on how that is rolling out specifically in the UK and what are some of the things that you're, you're coming across so that that might give our audience here in North America a little bit of some insight as to where this thing is going. And so I guess let's talk first why is ESG and net zero something that are services that you provide? I mean, obviously there was the relationship and I appreciate the background on, you know, the trip to India, but was there something specifically with that that you wanted to combine with your real estate experience? It felt like perfect timing. I was very keen to make a difference. I mean, we've, We've all worked for people, we've all had bosses, but I didn't want to just carry on earning money for someone else when I couldn't control exactly where it went. I wanted to make sure that there was a bit of a, you know, you're thinking about legacy and that, that's not to be too self-aggrandizing. I'm just trying to explain that, you know, I had two young kids. I was very focused on the kind of world that they were going to be growing up in. And so I decided to just do something for myself rather than work for a charity or, or anything like that. I wanted to make sure that I was doing something that was also going to be commercially minded as well, because then that would become a passion project for me. And I think the timing was genuinely pretty perfect because there's such a focus on it right now within real estate, whether you call it ESG or CSR or sustainability, net zero, there's a lot of different buzzwords for it. And that's, that's why we call ourselves good management group, because ultimately it is it's about the business of doing good and managing your impacts on an environmental or a social level in particular. And there is a serious focus on that from real estate in particular because of the investor climate. Um, ESG is the term within finance and investments that's banded around. And for, for those that don't know, that's uh, environment, social and governance. And it deals with 
all of the factors that might come into play when you're running a business. And for finance firms, they're looking at what the ESG factors and ESG impacts are for each company that they may invest in. So for an operator or a developer or a university, for example, the firms that are financing any kind of developments that they're looking at, they are going to be asking a lot of questions on ESG. And it can be things like, how happy are your staff? How much are you paying them? What's your interaction and impact within your community? And then beyond that into your environmental impacts, whether it be carbon emissions or your waste or water management schemes, energy management schemes, whatever it might be, it's really making sure that ESG really is is a way of making sure that your impacts are as positive as they possibly can be and that they're communicated beyond that. And that's where I saw there was a huge gap in real estate for a company to come in and help firms of all levels manage, at all levels and all sizes, manage their impacts and then communicate those impacts, develop a strategy to then mitigate those impacts and ultimately manage them on an ongoing basis. And so that's what we've been doing. We act as a, an outsourced ESG department or we sort of bolster the existing ESG team. And we typically have a four-stage process where we go into each firm that we work with and we have a full review. We check the performance. We survey all the stakeholders. We speak to the senior team. We find out whether goals are aligned and investors are aligned and that supply chains are working efficiently. And then we'll help them create a strategy based on what their current performance is and what their goals are. And that includes a net zero strategy, but not always. Um, beyond the strategy, we can then help them implement it uh, implement a credible ESG strategy with training, with policies, with systems and processes. And these systems are kind of pre-existing, but we've also built our own too. And then following the implementation, we then make sure that we can help them manage on an ongoing basis. And that's been ultimately the sort of biggest reward that we act as this outsourced ESG expertise. So student accommodation is one sector that good management is focused on. It's been pretty incredible to also see some of the football stadiums, or as we call them in the States, soccer stadiums that yeah. you've been working with as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, effectively, we've done fair bits of work with Premier League team. And some of these we can't really talk about because of certain NDAs that we've, we've, we've started. Gotcha. But yeah, we've, so we've worked with Premier League football teams. We've worked with rugby league teams as well to ultimately help them minimize their impacts and then communicate them. Now, sports teams in particular, I kind of equate them in a similar vein to student housing because we got into this because we wanted to have a real impact for the end user ultimately. So you think about sports, huge number of participants and supporters, and there's a real opportunity for sports teams in showing best practice and communicating best practice on a you know, for sustainable lifestyles to really impact those lifestyles. And also then for student housing as well, for student housing operators to say, this is how you live sustainably and, and make uh, sustainable lifestyle choices. So for any, any work that we've done with sports teams or events or work stadiums, for example, it's really been focused about how can we communicate positive steps to the end user as well. And that's, that's what's really kind of set us apart. It's not just about bricks and mortar, and you know, how do you create a sustainable building? It's also about how can you inform and influence those lifestyle choices of the end user uh, or the resident, for example. We've worked on the Oxford Cambridge boat race, for example, doing a huge sustainability report for you know an event with two hundred and fifty thousand people, uh, various bits with uh, Wigan Warriors rugby league team, 
and uh, American Golf as well, a big golf chain um, in the UK, uh, golf retail shops. We've effectively helped them to create a net zero strategy and then manage that on an ongoing basis. That's super rewarding because we do see the impacts that these clubs have at a grassroots level and also then within their communities too. That's part of the reason for choosing in particular sport and real estate as the two key focuses for us at the moment. Gotcha. So we've thrown around a couple of things that I think everybody knows what ESG is. You've also mentioned CSR and that, of course, net zero. And I, I really want to get into net zero because that's it's kind of a specific mandate that I want to talk to you about. But CSR, what I, I think I know what, <laughs> what that stands for, but what, what does CSR stand for? Another great acronym. Yeah, it's um, CSR is corporate social responsibility, and it's it's sort of it's the precursor to ESG. To be honest, it was actually around the sort of sixties and seventies that people started to talk about social responsibility and the damages that certain corporate entities were having on the environment and on people and society. And so CSR was sort of seen as a bit of a social impact movement to really help companies communicate the impacts that they were having on people and society in particular. The environment was seen as something slightly separate. And then various terms came in for sort of environmental impacts and talking about being carbon neutral or carbon positive or whatever else it might be. And then we obviously move on to net zero now as well. So yeah, let's dive into that. I think it's good for especially our US audience, which is the primary audience, to really understand what net zero is. Can you go into that? Net zero carbon is, is when your carbon emissions emitted because of, of all activities associated with any kind of sort of development or ownership running of a building, um, they're, they're either zero or they're negative. Ideally, they're, they're negative. You know, You want to be giving back. And there's a lot of talk at the moment about regeneration, um, uh, the sort of regenerative economy, which is where ultimately companies and real estate firms in particular can end up giving back to the planet through focusing on biodiversity and various other measures too, but making sure that yes, you are net zero. Um, Now in the UK, we have government targets of net zero by 2050, um, that every firm, doesn't matter how big or small, will have to be net zero by 2050. That seems like a long time away. Even in the UK and Europe, there's a lot of kicking the can down the road. And of course, on a political level, it's a bit of a football that gets kicked around. We see that pretty consistently. Now, one of the interesting things is that, yes, more recently, and especially at the moment, Southern Europe is experiencing extreme heat. And of course, I've seen this in the States as well. These are definitely linked to climate change. There is absolutely no denying it. There is a huge amount of scientific evidence. Um, So it is starting to have that impact on a global level. And that is what net zero is there to mitigate, to really help to bring down global warming, ideally below that 1.5 degree target that we're aiming for. Otherwise, these extreme weather events, the extreme heat, the flooding, the droughts, etc., they will continue, they will get worse, and it will destabilize a lot of countries. And I think the fact that we've got targets of 2050 in the UK, I think that's certainly reasonable for every company to be getting on board with. There are some that are leading the way and saying, you know, we're already net zero, but there's no real credible body for fully establishing, testing, and communicating exactly whether a company is net zero or not. That is one of the key issues that, unfortunately, on a global level, the UN really don't have any teeth. And I've had conversations with the UN, in particular through my work in sport, 
where we'd created a certification to showcase how sustainable sports teams are. But the UN sort of said, ah, you guys do that. We don't really want to get involved. We leave all of the certifications, etc., to other independent bodies or private bodies. And I do think there's a real opportunity for the UN to take a leadership role and then for each individual government to make sure that there is a credible strategy behind the net zero targets. One of the ways that we do that in the UK is something called the SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And that's effectively a way of having a look at what your current benchmark is at the moment within your industry and within your company, and then helping to create a credible strategy that you can, uh, it's effectively a pathway, a net zero pathway, SBTI would help you create. And that's something that's just starting to be rolled out across various different firms of different levels, but it's not that cheap. So it's not sort of out of the reach of most small and medium enterprises. So I think the big problem with net zero at the moment is that it's a political football. It seems like it's a long way off, and yet the you know the impacts right now are sort of imminent for certain countries. It's complicated to understand your impacts. It's broken down into the various different scopes of carbon emissions with sort of scope one and two, things that you can kind of control, and scope three, a bit more upstream, downstream, thinking about your supply chain and your end user or your resident, for example, and the impact that they have in using your accommodation, for example. And so there is definitely a sort of lack of education, lack of understanding as to exactly what people need to be doing. And I think that's where certifications should come in. We do need to make sure that we have credible certifications that align business goals with net zero goals and make it very clear as to the performance of each company, it doesn't matter how good they are. And to do that, you need a huge amount of data. That's, again, one of our key focus areas building out a data product that is going to completely aggregate as much data that any real estate provider can throw at us, display it in a really simple way for all of our clients to see internally, but also for them to showcase on a public level too. So it's a hugely contentious and complicated area. And what we're trying to do at Good Management Group is really break that down and sort of explain it in simple terms to our clients, but also then to their end users, to their supply chain, and bring everyone along on the journey. There's no net zero shaming here. Like, <laughs> it's key to sort of start where you are with what you've got. And that's not something that everybody is doing for for the right reasons, to be completely honest. Some people want to get to net zero because it's risk management, etc. That's fine. Yeah. Some people want to do it because it's a good news story and it's a communications piece. Again, that's fine. But what we really want is people understanding how much good that they could be doing both economically for their company and their industry, but also for the planet and people and society as a whole. And it doesn't have to be big sweeping changes. It can be quite small tweaks initially. And then know that it's a journey. No one has all the answers yet, but start making those steps now. And that's where we help. And that's the key role for the business. I'm glad you laid it out that way because I'm going into my 27th year of student housing and I'm getting to that point where I've seen a lot. And it started out with lead certification on developments mm. here in the US. And it was funny kind of seeing that roll out in a way that and everybody, you know, putting the, the plaque on their door or putting a, something in a industry magazine or whatever that said, you know, this is lead gold certified or whatever. And especially in California, that was something that 
the local politicians were, you know, if you wanted it approved, it had to be gold, platinum level, you know, whatever lead top lead certification. But the thing was, was for the most part, all of the standards that were going into those developments were happening anyway. Yeah. And it was just a way to, you know, a way to say, hey, look here, we did something <laughs> as yeah. opposed to, okay, did we really put thought into sustainability? Yeah, we've used these certain materials. That's great. But we were probably going to use those materials anyway because of cost. I don't know. I saw a lot of things with that where I was just like, this is a marketing ploy. Yeah. And, and I think to a certain, a certain extent, it's the same thing with ESG. I mean, it is the environment and uh, specifically climate change is it is like you said it's something that we we literally can feel especially this summer um, and it's it, it's one of those things is it's obviously on top of everyone's mind but at the same time and, and this is just my personal opinion you know i understand from an investment standpoint someone wanting to know that they're investing into a piece of real estate or some other company that they can look at some type of score to give some kind of uh, insight into those operations. On the other side of it, I've seen these things, perversion's not the word I want to use, but I've seen these things, these labels manipulated to when you really see what's behind the hood of it, it means absolutely nothing. And that's where I don't want net zero and ESG to go. And um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, We'll see what happens. I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate your honesty in, in saying that the US is 10 to 15 years behind the UK and, and EU, as you, as you did earlier. I do think that is the case. I mean, yes, you have you have lead and you have certain uh, requirements for, you know, from, from the SEC with, with regards to ESG reporting. Some of those are there in terms of mandating. Some of those are coming in. Like everyone at some point is going to have to report on their impacts on a social and environmental level. And you could either get ahead of the curve and start doing that now and, you know, reap the benefits in terms of improved reputation. And from a student housing point of view, students are looking at sustainability. It's been in the top 10 for a few years now in the UK in terms of what students are using to make their decisions. And I think it, that's one of the difficult things in the UK, making that decision and taking an, an informed view, because we have a few operators that are starting to use terms that are you know they feel are appropriate to them because it suits their narrative and i mean things like talking about operational net zero which i think is slightly misleading because realistically when you're talking about operational net zero that is your scope one and two emissions which covers everything that you can kind of control your energy costs etc and ultimately you're then sort of using net zero and that, that is ultimately, for me, that's greenwashing. Like, I, I can't really, I can't say anything else about that. It is greenwashing. It's doing it with, with reasonable intentions, but it's just confusing for everyone. And I think what we need is that international standard that everybody understands. Now, in the UK and Europe, we have BRIAM as our equivalent to LEED. BRIAM is starting to become the standard for most student accommodation buildings. Now, there's various different levels of BRIAM that you can get, or you can get BRIAM in use, which is for any you know buildings that are already built, and then BRIAM in development as well. And ultimately, getting to a standard where you can say, hey, look, we are BRIAM excellent or BRIAM outstanding. That is where you want to get to. Now, student housing, it seems like most of them are going for good or very good. 
which is there's a lot more that they could be doing. And that's a frustrating thing for me that I don't think that the student housing industry, even in the UK, you know, arguably the most mature market out there, is not ambitious enough. And part of the reason for that is, again, following the money back to the investors. Some of these investors are seeing ESG as a bit of a tick box exercise. I'm lucky that some of the clients that I work with don't, in particular partners group, sort of a Swiss private equity firm, very focused on ESG, which is great for me from a student housing consultancy standpoint and from a good management standpoint. And they want to see things right the way through from the development, investment, look at all of the relevant certifications through to you know, the customer journey and, and how the customers looked after. But I think creating those credible standards and making sure they're applied and that people, even the largest firms, know that they need to be hitting Briam outstanding for every new development. And there's no excuse not to. The only reason you wouldn't is purely from a cost perspective. Now, the issue that we've got in the UK at the moment is that we can't build enough beds quick enough. We have a massive undersupply of student housing beds and we have some serious headwinds for the developments of these new PBSA because cost of capital has gone up, cost of labor, cost of materials, etc. So everything is going up. When you're value engineering, certain sustainable materials may get value engineered out of a project. Instead of going for BREAM outstanding, you may then go for BREAM very good. And that is a real frustration for me when I still see, even in a mature market like the UK and through Europe, that there are certain areas of sustainable development and procurement in particular that get value engineered straight away. So, yeah, we do need to make sure that there is a serious benchmark and a real sort of understanding of what does good look like for a development, for an operational asset. There's a lot of work done by... Global Student Living with their Net Zero Task Force, trying to create that standard. And I think that's what everybody needs to be aligned on what good actually looks like and how can you actually get there? Because right now, there's no consensus. In the UK in particular, you have the likes of Unite or UPP or Empiric. These are listed companies on the stock exchange. And ultimately, they have to produce these reports. Well, that's the only time you get any data from any student housing companies when they have to produce these quarterly reports that showcase their environmental and social impacts. There's no other data out there from any other operators at the moment. And that's what needs to change. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, is it possible within PBSA to get there? And I think you did a pretty good job there of just, of just answering that. Let's go back. I want to talk about something that leads into it. And you touched on it there for a minute because the development does seem to be at a much, we've slowed down here in the States post COVID. I feel like you guys are, are, you know, starting to swell with how, how much develop is actually needed. You know, obviously the faster these things have to go up, the less I think people are, are thinking about net zero and sustainability. Let's talk about that for just a second. What is pushing? Cause I know this is something that you're talking about quite a bit on LinkedIn. What is pushing that need for additional PBSA in the UK. I know a lot of it has to do with international students, but I think there's way more behind it than that. Can you kind of give our audience a little bit of background into what's leading to that? Sure. So we've just come out of obviously COVID. So there's some pent up demand there already, but equally, even without COVID, we're going to be short about 400,000 beds across the UK by 2026. So 
we are well short. There are only a few locations in the UK that you would say are adequately or overly supplied. And by overly supplied, a market like Coventry, for example, one university in that city, 70% occupancy for the PBSA operators there. Most markets will be 100% this year, and some are well oversubscribed. Now, we've come out of COVID, so the pent-up demands there, international students can now travel. We're also out of a demographic dip. So leading up to 2030, where we'll peak, we'll have more 18-year-olds available coming to the age of university applications. You know, we've never had this many 18-year-olds before who are ready to go into university. Our international numbers, it's been pretty interesting with Brexit. EU students have fallen off a cliff. So it's around 60% drop in the last three years that we've experienced since their new tuition fees came in. And post-Brexit, it just means that the EU students that study in the UK, they pay flat international student rates for their tuition fees. And that's anything up to sort of £35,000 per year compared to 9000 as it was previously. So EU students have dropped off. However, it's been more than made up for by, in particular, Chinese and Indian students. Now, now the Chinese this year is actually dropping slightly, which is a, a marker for various other sort of reasons. There's more PBSA in China now. There is better quality university degrees in China too. And they're looking elsewhere. They're looking at Canada. They're looking at Australia. They're, they're looking at the US. But the numbers are still significant. But where we've really picked up is Indian students in particular, which is great from my side of things because I've got a lot of experience there and I fully understand the markets. But the the numbers are increasing pretty pretty drastically to the point where by 2030, UCAS, our sort of governing body for applications, expects that there will be a million undergraduate applications every single year. And currently there's around sort of 600,000, 650,000 or so. So there's going to be a huge increase still in those numbers on a domestic level and on an international level too. That demand is definitely not going to be met when we're only building this year about 15,000 beds. That is woefully low, partly because of, as I said before, cost of capital, cost of development, etc., cost of land. And I think that there's no way of, of really alleviating the problem particularly quickly and where students will typically rely on the sort of what we call the HMO market, house of multiple occupancy, which is your typical sort of student houses. You'll go and move in with five people or whatever it might be. That's sort of local housing stock. Those landlords have been hit with some new energy regulations that they need to hit EPCB, which is a, a specific sort of energy performance certificate is your EPC and they need to hit rating B whereas currently there's no real specification on exactly what they need to hit. So that's really going to hit a lot of landlords. A lot of them are selling up. There's 30% less stock this year than there was last year in the private rented market because the landlords do not want to run these HMOs anymore. And that's a significant portion of the student housing industry. So we've got a serious supply crunch, and there's no sign of it being alleviated anytime soon. So let me ask, I guess, I, what are the options? Are the options to to reduce international students as you get closer to this twenty thirty demographic um, uptick? Well, that's that's kind of happening anyway because we've got a bit of a hostile environment towards immigrants in the UK here at the moment, whether legal or illegal. That comes out of the Home Office, and the rhetoric that we're seeing coming from the government at the moment is very focused on driving down those numbers. And what we'd like to see is that they separate the international student numbers from the, the net migration numbers 
um, because it's, mm-hmm. it's misleading. They're here for a, a short amount of time. But the government have been governing by headlines, and they're very focused on electioneering and winning the next election, which is looking increasingly unlikely for a conservative government. And therefore, they are focusing on immigration as a, again, a bit of a football that's being kicked around. And so the student numbers within that have just been capped for dependence. So from January on onwards, students that are coming to the UK from abroad, bringing dependence with them, they will be banned. They're not allowed from January. That is going to really impact Nigerian and Indian students in particular, but also women, primarily women as well. So it's a tricky one because, yes, you can cap these numbers, but if there's a lot of policy making coming out of the government that's kind of using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And it needs a much more coherent and long-term international recruitment and student housing strategy aligned together. And for that, you need complete buy-in from all universities and education agents as well that are bringing students into the country and UCAS and the other bodies like Unipol and and UKISER and basically get everybody around the table. And at the minute, the Home Office seem to act very much in isolation to try and drive these migration figures down as, as much as they can. And it's pretty frustrating to kind of stand on the sidelines. So... I've been trying to um, trying to speak with various different government departments and shadow government departments, and I think the message is starting to to get across that international students bring in thirty eight billion pounds into the UK economy every single year. We've got to make sure that we are treating them as a real benefit to the economy, yeah. rather than penalising them for wanting to come to the UK for better opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, I want to get to I want to go ahead and get to the the recorded panel that we have from Shop Talk. I, I won't do a, uh, an introduction here because I do an introduction in the recording, but I was really impressed with what these guys have to say and think it's important for everybody to hear it. So let's cut to that now. And then on the outro, we'll make sure everybody knows how to connect with you, Dan. For those that may not know anything about ESG, let's just give a kind of a quick overview. Uh, for those that have not been kind of paying attention this past couple of years, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance. It's a business framework for considering environmental and social issues in context of corporate governance that is applied by investment and lending firms who want to direct their money toward companies that are socially responsible May of last year, we actually did a section on ESG. It was very focused on sustainability. The Echelon Energy helped us out with, but also gave a big kind of uh, 50,000 foot view of ESG. So if you want a little bit more of kind of the basics of ESG, I would suggest going to our website and pulling that up. It was May of, of 22 that we did that. But like I said, the leadership committee kind of wanted to come back in and had a couple of things that they wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about an SEC rule that is pending uh, of being released that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that is going to affect REITs specifically. And then also wanted to get a little bit of an update on social and governance. And so we've got a fantastic group here today that can explain all of that to us. And with that being said, I'll let them introduce themselves. Sure, I can go ahead and get started. So I'm Jill Brosig. I'm the Chief Impact Officer for Harrison Street. And my background in 
ESG. I've been doing this role for quite a number of years, but prior to that, I actually started out as a physicist. That was my original role. And probably the thing that's most interest that would tie into ESG is one of the jobs that I had that I was doing research in inertial confinement fusion. And fusion is how the sun makes energy. So we're really trying to capture how the sun makes energy. If you were able to do that, then you'd have this source of clean, reliable, perpetual energy. So not in that field anymore, but that's the kind of insight that I bring to what we're doing. At Harrison Street, we've had a formal ESG program since 2013. We have a fully dedicated team that works on this, plus we have a number of committees, and it really has permeated itself throughout the whole organization. Pretty much everyone in the organization has some level of ESG goals, and it really is a part of how we make investment decisions, what we do when we're holding onto assets, and even when we dispo. So I'll turn it over to Chris to let him introduce himself. My name is Chris Lofman, and I'm the Senior Director of Energy and Sustainability for Graystar. I've been in the industry for 20 years now, and it's ESG. Before, we called it ESG, called it sustainability, or just trying to make a difference back in the day. Most of you are probably familiar with Graystar, but just because of our size and positioning in the market with over $240 billion in real estate under management and operation, and in 130 different markets globally, we are exposed to a lot of trends that come in different directions and, and, and influence other markets. So we tend to be on the cutting edge to kind of understand, well, hey, what's this going on in Europe? It'll soon impact the U.S. In the U.S. specifically, just kind of speaking generally, I'll let Maddie speak specifically to student, but we manage roughly 2,800 properties in 49 states, and that's across multifamily, student, active adult, and other real estate verticals. And my name is Maddie. I'm on Chris's team at Graystar, Director of Sustainability. Before this, I was at a different multifamily company, really building the groundwork for a vertically integrated sustainability program. To follow Jill's lead before that, I was doing life cycle assessment research. So I really enjoy seeing all the different parts of a system and how they all fit together and what the different impacts of all of that is. So I see sustainability as a big puzzle in multifamily, and I'm excited to talk about it here. Graystar has about it has over 85,000 student beds, and that's just in the U.S. So we, our team has a U.S. focus, but Graystar is, is global. Well, fantastic. One thing that's really kind of struck me is uh, I've been working with you guys over the past week and, and preparing for this is the fact that these positions are now you know, really required positions for for companies that are certainly your size and dealing with the REITs and just kind of curious if I didn't really prep you guys for this question, but at what point does someone need to not just or a company specifically need to think about having someone full-time in some type of ESG role? I think every company probably kind of assigns it to someone, but just kind of wondering from your own experience at what point, does it make sense for someone to bring somebody on board that's focused on it full time? There's not a magic formula, obviously, right? Um, the, the key factor is when you have people. So either you have people in your buildings, you have people in your organization, or you have people that are investors that are trying to invest. Any one of those factors, and obviously we have probably a combination thereof, probably with every organization out there on this call, you just have to look at and see what is the burden between the DDQs that investors are asking, you have you have all kinds of uh, compliance. You have laws that are coming into place. You have you know you alluded to the SEC rule and, and the regulations with that. It can definitely be a full time job. It just depends on the amount of assets you have and the amount of 
reports you're doing, et cetera. I wish I could give you a formula, but yeah. I don't have a formula to tell you when you hit this, you need it. I don't know over at Harrison Street, Joe. Yeah, I would agree. There's not a formula, but I think it does depend on what your brand is and what you want to state. Much of this you could outsource to someone else and have them do a lot of the reporting for you. You could have a more junior person do it. Like I said, we have a, a fully dedicated team and a lot of, and it's great starting as folks as well. Two of them are on the call here too. But it really depends on where do you want to position yourself. There's a whole section of ESG that are you have to do. You have to respond to investor requests. There's certain reports you have to do. But where do you want to take it beyond that? How proactive do you want to be? What kind of footprint do you want to say? Or what kind of brand do you want to say about what your ESG messaging is? We're trying to be really forward thinking in terms of what we're doing. In fact, our mission is, is that we really try to do pioneering things. And the only way you can do that is if we're doing it in-house and we're coming up with our own strategy. So I think there's a difference between what you're forced to do or have to do versus what you want to do because it's part of who you are as, as a company, as an entity. Great, great. Well, I did launch a, a poll question. What has your ESG experience or what has your experience been with ESG so far? And the answers range from I was today years old when I learned about ESG to ESG compliance is one of my main responsibilities. Right now, it looks like everybody's coming in kind of in the middle of, I know generally what it is, but it doesn't really impact my day-to-day, -day, or it's a topic that is coming up more and more in more and more conversations. So I think we've got kind of the perfect audience for you guys to be speaking with. Let's jump on this SEC rule that is coming out. Uh, for those that aren't aware, um, the SEC mandated, I believe, that came out in March of last year for all public companies that climate risk is a material financial risk factor and therefore there would need to be some reporting and some risk mitigation that would have to happen because of that. The rule was targeted to begin in October of 22, but due to a SCOTUS ruling on suit between West Virginia and the EPA, that's been pushed back to come out at any point in time. But that is not stopping companies from preparing based on what the uh, SEC has previously provided. So my first question for for the panel is, will this rule apply to any REIT that is registered with the SEC or only publicly traded REITs? REITs are governed by the SEC uh, by design. So while you may not be publicly reporting, you still need to file with the SEC typically. The way the rule was originally written and seems to be holding up through the uh, public comment and et cetera, is that it applies to any entity governed by the SEC. So at this point, the position that most of the industry seems to be taking is if you're REIT, this will affect you and or if you're publicly traded, it will affect you. Maybe just to add one thing to think about is there's one thing that the SEC is saying, but there's another thing you should be doing just because it's good business practices. So when you went to the previous slide where you were talking about this whole that the SEC is saying that physical risks are material, you need to be looking at what physical risk is for all of your assets, regardless of what the SEC is saying. That's just good business practice. You should be aware of if it's at risk for whatever, hurricanes, wildfires, sea level rise, you name it, and making sure that you have those mitigation processes and practices completed. When we're seeing more hurricanes, more flooding, you know, globally we're seeing these types of things. Investors are getting leery that how safe are our investments? And so there's one thing we have to do it because we're being told, but the other thing is you should be doing it already. Well, so if I could just add on, because that's a, it's a, it's such a perfect point. 
ESG, honestly, and we kind of talked about this in our pre-meeting, this is about risk management. Our investors invest not to lose money, right? I mean, any investor is not intending to lose their investment. They're looking to protect it. So this is just another step to make sure that you are evaluating what may impact that investment. So whether you think ESG affects you or not, if you have assets and those assets have value, there's risks. And if you're not managing those risks, then you know that's where ESG comes in. We're looking at what may impact you from a climate perspective, from an operational perspective, as far as NOI. We're looking at it from diversity and, and all kinds of other areas that we'll get into. But the, the point being is, this is risk management at the end of the day. Well, and that, that was my next question with this proposed rule that they put out. Is it more about setting emission requirements or is it, is it really focused on just disclosing the risks? On this particular rule, the way that it seems to be written is it's about disclosure, not necessarily setting targets. However, if you target, you must verify or quantify where you are in relation to that target. So this is very much about data. It has, at this point, scope one, scope two, and material scope three emission reporting. For those of you not familiar, that's carbon emissions related to energy that's burnt on site. That's a scope one, like gas. Energy that's burnt off site on your behalf, which is electric, basically. And then scope three uh, gets into things like your residents and make it into supply chain, all kinds of other areas. And, and that's where material, we have to be able to count that in order to report it. And so far, perhaps it's a year down the road, two years down the road, depending on the size of the company, this data has to be assured uh, as well. So you're going to have to have data to comply with this. So if you don't know how much electric you're using and you haven't converted that into how much carbon impact that represents from a scope one, scope two perspective, and potentially scope three if it's material, then you need to take a hard look at your data and start trying to figure out what is your impact as a company. And really, we should probably be measuring that anyway because that also presents opportunities because once you know where you're using more energy than you expect, that also presents the opportunity to reduce that and improve NOI. And I just put out, just published for everybody to um, be able to download. This will also be on our website later if you're not in a place where you can download it, but actually a checklist for REITs and you know for preparing for this rule to, to come out with, from the SEC. So I think that's a, a great tool to look over with your, with your board of directors or or operations team to make sure you guys are compliant. Well, hey, I want to get into the social aspects of ESG. I think student housing companies and, and everybody in general have really been putting a big focus as far as their social impact was concerned on employees. But housing providers have got a real opportunity to make a big impact with, with those that we're serving, our residents, as well as kind of our campus community at large. And just kind of interested, you know, are there some resources or, or general guidelines on how management companies can better provide that social impact with those groups? I think it's really, like you said, Wes, it starts internally with the company culture. And then that permeates to how our you know, employees can treat the residents, in this case, the students. But I think the real magic happens when you involve the local community. So really, it's about being in touch with what matters to your renter population. So we're seeing a lot of students are really passionate about climate change, about environmental justice, about biodiversity, like ensuring that we're protecting the resources that affect their future. So if you have 
partnerships in your local market. So maybe it is a national partnership where you can say, our company recognizes that we have this population that really cares about food security. So we're going to partner with this nonprofit that helps us engage our residents in this way. What I would advise is just to make sure that you're kind of keeping track of which organizations you're partnering with. Maybe it's the number of communities that have partnerships with them, the number of hours that you've put into it. Maybe it's the dollars donated so that you can kind of keep that story going internally to let your associates know about that, which keeps the company culture going. And then if you need to report that to investors or on an ESG report for an annual case, you can do that as well. But just kind of starting to keep track of the things you're already doing and connecting that with what matters to your population. Yeah, and I'll just piggyback on some of the things that Maddie had already talked about. I mean, certainly being very focused on what, and it could be bespoke or it could be more general in terms of what are the types of programs you're doing at the community level, at the student housing level. It could be like she just said, it could be tied to something that, you know, what do they really care about? It could be donating food to the homeless. It could be volunteering. It could be whatever it is. A couple of things that we've done, and I I think this first one is probably the one that Maddie was referring to, is we started a program called Student Care. Right now, the two populations that research has told us are the loneliest are seniors and students. Harrison Street as a company is one of the largest owners of students and the largest owner of senior communities. So what we did is several years ago, we started to cross-pollinate these two generations. We no longer live in a society where it's very commonplace for grandparents to live in the same household as grandchildren. So we're losing so much of that intergenerational knowledge in those relationships. So we started this program and it's not just a feel-good thing, there's actually financial benefits as well. We find from the senior living communities they don't have to spend as much on overtime. They don't have to spend as much on recruiting costs. And frankly, everyone is living longer, so we need more caregivers. So to have this younger generation come in, that's been tremendous. From the student side, a lot of them are figuring out, this is something I wanna do. This is a career path perhaps I had never considered. Maybe they were in some sort of a medical or healthcare field and never thought about it. We had one young woman that she told us before she started working in this field, to be completely honest, she said, her and all of her friends were afraid of old people. I mean, oh my gosh, to be afraid of old people, that's just such a sad thing. But then she got this job and she said, this is what my career is going to be. She said, I love working in this community. Every day I leave, so happy because I've helped people. And so it's a wonderful thing. So we can tie it back to financial and economic benefits. Plus there's all of these social aspects that just make it so much stronger. The other thing that we've done that we've committed to is on the health and wellness side. And we have committed to roll out FitWell Healthy Building Certification across all of our properties that have occupants in them. At this point, we have over 250 FitWell projects. We have more than than anyone else in the world right now in terms of FitWell certifications. And we're doing it for a couple of reasons. One, because we just believe that if you have a building that's been blessed by the CDC as being deemed healthy, that creates an attractiveness and advantage and market differentiation, so to speak. We also think it helps attract students and staff to be working, to be living in these types of a building. So that's something that we just feel is important to us. So those are, there are two aspects, the mental wellness and the overall health and wellness underneath social that we're doing. And FitWell, people can find out more about that at CDC's website? The CDC was the creator of FitWell, the CDC along with uh, the GSA, but the organization that is the licensor of it is an organization called the Center for Active Design. But if someone just was to type in fitwell.org, you can find out a lot more information about it. Gotcha. 
Well, hey, let's let's talk about governance because I feel like that is kind of the one area that especially smaller student housing operators are really kind of grappling with because there's a lot of checking of the boxes and that can be very overwhelming, obviously. And, you know, when you're looking at all the things that you have to do as a management company and even as a as an ownership group, a lot of that doesn't give you that immediate ROI. And, and so it constantly gets put to the back burner. Can you kind of help those of us that are in those type of companies break this down, chop it up into small bites? What can we kind of attack first? What should be our priority when we're when we're looking at this? I guess maybe the first thing I'll say is just to kind of level set what is governance? What does the G mean here? So certainly what you're honing in on, Wes, here is around the reporting piece and kind of the checking of the boxes. Governance, just for everyone's edification, is, of course, bigger than that. We do a regular materiality survey every few years where we ask our investors, our operating partners, our employees, really all of our key stakeholders, what's most important to you? What's most material from an E, S, and a G perspective? We just completed our latest materiality survey. And if I just carve out the G piece, what are the top three or four things that they called out? Fiduciary responsibility. Okay, that's kind of a given. Cybersecurity, maybe we don't think about cybersecurity as being under the G, but it would fall under the G. Data protection and privacy, kind of another similar in that vein of cybersecurity, and DEI. So these are the things that they're saying from a governor's perspective are most important to them. So one of the things that I would say for anyone on the phone, if you're trying to figure out what you need to do, make sure you're talking with your key stakeholders, what's most important from them. Now, if we just carve it down to what's on the reporting side, because again, it can be overwhelming. You have that word on that slide, and that's a great word to use because there is so much. Kind of separating out what's the must-haves and the nice-haves. If anyone's working with someone like us, investment manager, where we do things like we submit to GRES, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, where we have to pull various key data, it would be working very closely with an organization like ourselves to, to pull that information and get that information and do that. Do they have an ESG strategy? Do they have an ESG policy? Do they have someone in charge of kind of at least pulling it together and then really separating out the must-haves versus the need-to-haves? I don't want anybody to get into this point where they're starting to go down the path of green hushing or green whispering saying, I don't even want to talk about what I'm doing around ESG because there's so much reporting or there's so much bureaucracy I need to do. It's not worth it. Yeah. I want people to know that these are the right things to do. This is what's right for my key stakeholders. This is what's right for us as a company. And we're going to put the resources behind it because we see that this truly makes a difference and it makes us a better partner, a better company because we're doing this. To hit really quick on the DEI from a governance standpoint, is that more of a makeup of board or is it more holistic as to you know having that representation all throughout your company? The rationale behind what, and again, some people do put DEI in the in the S bucket, so I, I want to recognize that. We put it in the G bucket because it has to do more about how you're governing your company. Mm-hmm. What are your hiring practices? How are you developing people? Does everyone have the same opportunity? Yes, what does your board look like? What does your investment committee look like? It's all part of that, but it really is tied more back to the culture. It's not a social program. We don't put it in social because it's not a social program where we're like, well, we need to do all these social activities to increase DEI. It's more of this is a belief, this is how we govern our business, and this is how we run our business. So that's why we have it there. I'm not that caught up in terms of where people put it as long as they're doing the right things, but for us, it's it's far bigger than a social initiative. It, it truly is how we govern our business. Gotcha. You know, Wes, one thing I just want to add on on the G as well, 
is about scalability, which is pretty real for us, for sure, with the size of our portfolio. But really, this G provides that ability to be scalable. G provides consistency. G provides the policies and procedures that allow you to be consistent across all your operations, whether you have two properties or you have 2,800 properties. Key to me, honestly, if I were to rename it, it would be GES because G drives the E, G drives the S. And really G sets up the framework in which we operate. And if you don't have those policies and procedures in place, then we already have them in place. Like the way we lease, typically we don't want our properties leasing differently at every single property. We, we want some consistency. We want to be able to look at that. And so those policies and procedures, that's really in my mind, one of the most important things about G is it sets up that framework that we operate consistently across the portfolio. For a company that's hearing what you're saying, Chris, and kind of looking back and saying, gosh, we really need to step back. We did all the things of creating our core values and those type of things, but we really didn't spend the time on these kind of aspects. Is it best to reach out to a consultant? Is there a fantastic workshop you <laughs> suggest they go to? Or What I tell people is exactly what Jill said that they do. First, you need to ask the question, why? Why are you doing this? And that's what the materiality study yeah. does. Whether you do that in-house or you do that third party, I personally kind of like the it being a third party because I think whenever you're asking your stakeholders what's important to them, you may get some more depth into the answers when it's a third party asking it versus in-house. Uh, you, you remove some bias potentially uh, that could be there. But honestly, that's the first step is why are you doing this in the first place? What is the goal you're trying to meet? And then you design the program around meeting those goals. Gotcha. So I, I know we've gone over and I appreciate the extra time you guys have given. There, there has been one question, and this was from Mike Redeker again. I don't know if this was so much for, for this panel versus the last, but man, it goes back to build on your question to that previous panel as well. But how do your firms work with local governments and universities to build affordable housing and new developments while ensuring deals generate required returns? I think that's a, again, going back to your question and, you know, we could talk about all these great, you know, social activities that we can do to, to help those in our, you know, in our neighborhoods that, that are struggling with food insecurity and things like that. But if the housing isn't so expensive, there may not be food <laughs> insecurity. So, just wondering what kind of conversations are you guys having within your firms on how to attack that? I'll just throw out one thing that we've been talking about. If we're in situations where the property itself is not 100% leased up, working with the university to identify those students that have some sort of a scholarship, but maybe not a full ride, maybe housing isn't part of it, and actually giving those students those empty beds that, frankly, we weren't going to lease up anyhow. I think probably I would answer it a little more broadly in the sense that a lot of this goes back to planning and beginning with the end in mind. So whenever you're setting up your performa for the property initially, knowing what the goals are for the operation of that property, it's important to build this into it. But, you know, if you're doing sustainability right, you're reducing waste, wasted electricity, wasted water, wasted waste stream, I guess the trash, that's reducing expenses. So we're creating value. We're reducing expenses with these programs, which is, should generate some revenue. Obviously, or not necessarily revenue, but operational expense that could help fund some of these programs. But if you don't begin with the end in mind, if you don't have these built into your performa, into your initial theory for the uh, investment, 
then you know it does make it difficult. So it's important to plan ahead. Well, great. Well, guys, I appreciate so much for the time and the extra time today of covering this topic. And I'll make sure that when we put the video out on our YouTube channel and for replay that you've got your contact information there in case anybody has any questions specific for you guys that maybe they didn't want to ask today. Again, thanks so much. Well, again, big thanks to Chris and Jill and Madison for spending their time with us on that shop talk. And obviously we will put their information in the show notes in case you want to reach out to them. And if you've got any questions for them, Dan, again, thanks so much for the extra time. I think we're all better for it. And if folks want to get a hold of you or if they want to connect with you on LinkedIn, what's the best way for them to search you up? Yeah, I mean, you can look up the website. It's goodmanagement.co, so goodmanagement.co and studenthousingconsultancy.com. So they're the best places to, to get hold of me. But equally on LinkedIn, it's just Daniel Paul Smith. But typically, if you search Dan PBSA, my name should come up. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks ever so much, Wes. Take care.